Welcome to The Hive Podcast, a new 10-part series with me, Natalie Nahai, exploring technology's impact on our personal, cultural and political lives. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud and YouTube and join in the conversation with the hashtag HivePodcast. If you enjoy the show, please do give us a rating on iTunes as it helps spread the word and makes it easier for other people to also find this content. And now for the show. Nell Watson is an entrepreneur, an engineer, and a public speaker whose work focuses on AI, cognitive science, blockchain, and human society. A member of the AI and robotics faculty at Singularity University, Nell is also a senior advisor to the Future Society at Harvard and serves as an advisory technologist to several accelerators, venture capital funds, and startups including the Lifeboat Foundation, which aims to protect humanity from existential risks that could end civilization as we know it, such as asteroid collisions or rogue artificial intelligence. Nell is the co-founder of OpenEth, an ethical explication engine that aims to crowdsource ethical heuristics for autonomous systems, and she's currently writing a book called The Founder Virtue. In this episode, we'll discuss the relationship between ethics, AI and empathy, and how values-based technologies could potentially enhance and enrich the fabric of human society. So the last time we met was a couple of years ago when we were both speaking at the next conference in Hamburg, which was really fun. And I remember being absolutely captivated by your talk on AI and empathy and your belief that technology could be leveraged to free us from some of the more sad or difficult aspects of being human. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about that? Um, (laughs) It's a big place to start. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, gosh, in the past few years, machine intelligence, AI, has really emerged as essentially a new utility that we can tap into at will. And just as electrification uh, has changed our economy in the past, this new utility is going to reshape every single industry in our society. It's a form of intuitive intelligence at the moment rather than cognitive. And I think that's something important to bear in mind. Essentially, these new forms of machine intelligence replicate anything that the human brain does in roughly one second or less of processing time. So it's sort of the the fast mode of thinking And so we have uh, machines which can recognize a person or a scene or uh, understand whether something is beautiful or interesting or apply kind of creative or predictive or even artistic styling elements um, from one thing to another. These kinds of um, fast ways of thinking can now be replicated by machines arguably even even better than than human beings can do those tasks in many ways and that we're starting to extend that out into things like piloting vehicles yeah that's an area which gets a lot of traction and it always comes up in conversation when i'm speaking to my tech friends and the philosophers among them are very cagey about um what it means and how one goes about coding for ethics and who gets to code it and what their frames of reference might be and um and whether that applies or can ever apply to a universal group of people, as opposed to specific groups who might have different takes on what's ethical and what's not. 
What are your thoughts around that? And how do we how do we code for ethics? Indeed, these are very, very difficult and very important questions. As machines are starting to become integrated into our society on ever deeper levels, and they are making decisions on our behalf, which relate to, for example, economic decisions, and perhaps in the 2020s, things based upon our beliefs and our values. It's very important that we are able to teach machines how to integrate into our society in ways that we would prefer and expect, but also to to begin to act in ways which we can believe are safe and also which are more in line with our own values and our own core beliefs. There are some interesting algorithms out there uh, for implementing different um, forms of ethical analysis for machines. But what we've learned from, from history is that algorithms are only a small portion of uh, the essential ingredients for new machine intelligence developments. In many ways, a lot of the algorithms we use today to do things like translate our speech into text were developed maybe a quarter of a century ago or more. But it's only in the past few years that they've become deployable. And the, the real difference is data. Data is what really drives AI and makes it, makes it possible, makes it uh, useful. If you think about it, even a very intelligent brain is only as good as the experiences that it has to draw upon. Mm. And in a machine intelligence terms, we call these experiences data sets, right? So they're sets of different examples which help to provide um, virtual experience for AI. And a few years ago, there was a, a lady professor at um, Princeton, now at Stanford, called Fei-Fei Li. Mm. And she created this data set for machine intelligence called ImageNet. And it was all related to uh, images of different objects like cats and buses and things like that. And at the time, few people understood the value of that data set. And yet, not only did the data set itself enable a lot of the developments we've seen in the past few years in machine vision, but it also provided a rallying point. Um, it was a way for people to benchmark their different approaches together, and it led to a very significant increase in the capabilities of that space in just a few years. I'm part of a group that would like to do something similar in the space of ethics, and so we're creating EthicsNet, a data set for uh, machine intelligence algorithms. Hmm. I know we've touched on this before in conversations that we've had, and the idea is hopefully to create something that we're all on board with. But how do you go about doing this when there's such, especially at this particular juncture in history and recent history in particular, uh, when there's such a fault line between people with perhaps more conservative values on one hand versus people with more liberal values and some of the ethics that connect or dissect those groups? How do you bring people together to create an ethics that we can all agree upon? Indeed. These are quite challenging questions. I think it's, it's very important to be as inclusive as possible and 
for people to um, believe that their contributions are uh, held and understood and are logged and have some influence in the system. Our approach so far is to try to map what's called descriptive ethics. So that's basically trying to um, understand the territory of different uh, ethical intuitions and people's um, at first glance understanding or, or appreciation of an ethical situation. So I think it's very important that we can over time begin to map the things that we find in common, those areas of common ground. And over time, it may be possible to work on what's called normative ethics. And that's basically finding ethics from um, applications of something like the scientific method and uh, reasoning from first principles in order to, uh, to create something like a a bioethicist might create um, a system of ethics that might be a little bit more uh, more nuanced or sophisticated. Mm. So basically map uh, the sort of common garden human <laughs> in his or her environment, uh, wherever they happen to be in the world, and then further down the line, perhaps try and optimize that. That's the approach so far. Mm. There's a lot of variety in the contexts in which people make decisions and in different contexts they can look at least from the outside quite quite different so you know saying you shouldn't kill and yet if someone's going to attack you some of us are willing to kill to defend our loved ones for instance so when we're thinking about the ways in which humans can be messy and inconsistent in our application of ethics even across similar contexts do you think there's a possibility for creating an elevated version of ethics that we could um we could kind of i suppose draw upon to design machines that are more ethical than us uh, and then you know they might decide to just take over society and make it better ethically or is is that even a distinct possibility do you think <laughs> well um i think i think it definitely is possible to um to create a moral or ethical reasoning engine, which is more sophisticated than the average human. Mm -hmm. Just as we've had uh, developments in machine intelligence, which are more sophisticated in certain ways than average uh, human beings at a certain task. There was a psychologist called Lawrence Kohlberg who reckoned that there were uh, maybe six, six or seven different levels of moral development in human beings across uh, all cultures. And it wasn't about what kind of decision somebody made, but rather the reasoning of why they made that particular decision. And throughout adult life, people might ideally um, develop their moral reasoning capabilities further and further. Mm -hmm. But Kohlberg re reckoned that most human beings made it to about level three or four of the sort of six or possible seven levels. And so there is potentially um, room for improvement. Now, over time throughout history, we have developed new models of ethical reasoning. So we've got Jeremy Bentham and utilitarianism, or we've got Kant's categorical imperative and so forth. 
And it stands to reason that there may be further forms of ethical reasoning that we haven't discovered yet. And elements of different moral reasoning capabilities might be woven together algorithmically so that one algorithm can take into account all of these different um, potential nuances. So, yes, I think it is uh, quite possible for machine intelligence to discover um, methods of moral reasoning or methods of uh, moral strategy, shall we say, which human beings have not yet discovered or uncovered. And one telling example of this is um, the AlphaGo system by DeepMind, which created new strategies for playing Go that no human player had ever demonstrated before. And people observing the game thought, oh dear, the system's gone haywire, it's gone wrong, it's doing something rogue and obviously a bit foolish, and then it won. Uh, <laughs> That's such a classic human response. Yes. Yes, this is very silly. What a load of nonsense. Oh, oh, it, it proved to be correct. Oh, oh dear. Um, and so we might, in fact, find something similar uh, with, with machines being able to uh, reason about um, uh, different ethical um, understandings in ways that human beings find challenging. And I think some people might have an epiphany and, uh, and think, oh my goodness, now I, I understand things in a whole new light. I think most human beings might not. And I think that could indeed potentially cause a bit of a schism in society where some people decide to update their beliefs um, and others would prefer to, um, to keep theirs as they are. Thank you very much. And I think one of the greatest uh, dangers in the years to come is not so much from machine intelligence going rogue and you know threatening human beings, but rather the the sort of knock-on effects of machine intelligence telling us truths that we perhaps might not wish to hear. Mm -hmm. So, in throughout history, we have seen examples of narcissistic injuries, right? So Copernicus and Galileo illustrating that, in fact, the Earth goes around the sun and there are many spheres out there uh, in, in the blackness of space and that we are not necessarily unique. And this, of course, went against many of the, uh, the religious teachings of the time. And I think that led directly to things like the Protestant Reformation a, a, little, bit, a little bit later. And that was an ugly business where entire villages disappeared uh, because of internecine um, sectarian strife. And if we fast forward a bit later, we come to Darwin's uh, origin of species and the, the descent of man. And people at the time thought, this is amazing. What an amazing discovery. We mustn't tell anyone. You know, no one must know this. Um, and, you know, around the same time, a little later, Nietzsche warned that God is dead and we have killed him and a time of uh, nihilism would be approaching. Uh, th that was quite telling because we had the Great War and its inevitable sequel and uh, the carnage of um, state totalitarianism throughout the 20th century. And, and so it seems as if every time humanity has 
a narcissistic injury, we don't necessarily respond to it very well and we tend to um, lash out and look for comfort uh, in any way that we can. And so my fear, therefore, is not so much from machines, but rather how human beings might react to them and um, how we might react to the magic mirror on the wall telling us that we're not necessarily the most beautiful in the land. <laughs> yeah, I think there's, there's a lot to that. Um, I wonder if also if we're creating things that are ethical or that are able to understand the needs and drives of humanity, what that means for us in terms of the existing structures that are built in such a way that you know they, they allow people who are perhaps less ethical to flourish. So if we're thinking about entire institutions that are set up to, I don't know, like prop up or allow such dynamics, for instance, you know, the, the, the banking system and how horrifically poorly that went the last few years since 2008. The systems like that, it seems to me, could do with a real ethical overhaul. Um, but what would happen if suddenly the machines we're using to, for instance, make microtransactions uh, to change the way we trade, if suddenly those machines grew a conscience? I mean, I'm talking about it in a slightly more emergent consciousness frame of mind, which I'm sure is mm. probably not that possible. Um, but what do you think it would do to the structure of society? I mean, is this even possible or am I just going off on some weird sci-fi fantasy? No, I um, I I I completely agree. Actually, I think um, I think that's that is where we're heading. Good governance, governance that actually tries to govern and govern well, rather than just um, propelling itself forward for the next incumbent. Good governance is the management and accounting of externalities. Basically, understanding who did what to what other person and when and how, and then attempting to uh, have some sort of justice for those externalities. So we've seen the first industrial revolution, which is all about motive power and replacing our brawn. And we've seen the informational revolution, which is about augmenting our brains and our memories and our ability to share information. I think that the convergence of AI, blockchain, and this emerging domain of machine ethics together might create a third revolution, a sort of um, techno-social, psychosocial, ethical revolution built upon these new social technologies. Social technologies which are able to account for externalities in ways which are a lot more sophisticated than we currently have today. So today when you know somebody does something, you attempt to prosecute them or fine them after the fact. But this is quite inefficient. And by uniting ethics and economics, it might be possible to have a sort of an upfront tax or a, an accounting of externalities as one, uh, as one does them. So your um, ethical decisions would reflect a form of economic reality, mm. that it would essentially pay to manage one's externalities a little bit better. And we, you know, we, we see elements of this today in, for example, um, schemes whereby one, uh, one pays for the amount of non-recyclable rubbish that one creates, but not uh, recyclables, those sorts of things. Mm. And I think that there are tremendous opportunities coming up 
over the next 10 to 20 years for these new social technologies to really revolutionize our society and create a new layer of accountability um, within the free market system. And I think those two things together ought to go very, very nicely. Mm, I agree. My main concern is, um, and I wonder what you think about this, who's going to create this layer? Because when you look at, for instance, the levels of surveillance now, especially in the UK, where the government and police are getting data in ways that have been deemed illegal in certain instances, but they continue to do so, there's very little incentive for them to act, I would say, more ethically. And yet there's still an aspect of using machines to create a society which, in their view, is more just because it enables people to be tracked more easily, you know, etc. And yet I think that many people would argue against that point. Um, I think it's sort of a roundabout way of saying that many people don't trust the government to do that kind of thing. Many of us don't trust the corporations to do that kind of thing because, you know, the incentives just simply aren't aligned. Mm. Who will do it? Because it does actually sound like a great idea. Yes. I think the main problem of, of government is that it is a monopoly, a monopoly of, of violence. And throughout history, it's been a necessary monopoly. Um, the, there's, there's been no real good way um, of getting around that because most monopolies of violence are still preferable to an anarchic situation. Mm. And any time that technology is applied in a way which is coercive, it usually makes the world a slightly worse place. And when it's applied in a way that is non-coercive, it usually, on balance, makes the world slightly better. And so I think that coercion is the magic um, poison ingredient that can turn um, even quite benign things uh, not so benign. I believe that through these new, um, this new layer of social technologies, we might be able to help find solutions which require less of a monopoly of violence mm. and which are able to locate and um, illustrate to people win-win situations. So by win-win situations, I mean uh, non-zero sum calculations, basically where there aren't winners and losers, but rather that um, both people can, can win or can find a way to act in symbiosis. And this is, this is something we sometimes find in nature, and it's a beautiful example when, when we see symbiosis at work, different organisms working together for their mutual benefit. And I think that these new social technologies have an opportunity to reshape our society further in that direction. Well, I think you're probably one of the most optimistic and informed voices that I've encountered in this kind of arena. So that makes me hopeful. Um, one of the areas maybe that you can help us have a bit more hope about is one that gets talked about a lot in the press and in the media, and that's kind of been around for a while. And for some, this is a much more pressing concern. So, you know, the automization of jobs and what it means, not just for the workforce and the effect it might have on the distribution of wealth, but also on the ways in which we live and derive meaning from our lives, which is a bit more of a philosophical perspective again. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious to, to ask what trajectory you think we're on. Do you think it may be that we end up instating a universal basic income? Do you think we'll know what to do with free time if we have it? 
Or will society continue to split with wealthy people getting wealthier and those who are in the tech business kind of soaring above into an elite society and leaving the rest of us behind? <laughs> um, what do you think is likely to happen and unfold in the next 10 or 20 years? Mm. Really, really, really um, good questions. Well, let's see. Certainly, having a role within society is something that's incredibly important. And a lot of people derive a great deal of status and a great deal of meaning from their, uh, their jobs within society. And the job basically reflects a lot of their role within society and within the family as a carer, as a provider, etc. In many parts of the world today, we're seeing what's been described as the opioid crisis. And this is something that's only getting worse and worse. Now, the, the root cause of this is essentially disconnection and people feeling less connected with their communities and with people around them. And sometimes it's okay to be a sort of rugged individualist on your own if you're doing okay. Um, but if it seems as if uh, life is getting harder and harder and opportunities are slipping by, uh, that's when people really start mm. to despair, when they have community around them. I think there may be opportunities for machine intelligence to help provide people with meaningful companionship and connection uh, where they otherwise may not have it. It may not be ideal, of course. Um, having connection with other human beings is a very nice thing, but perfect is the enemy of good. Now, statistically... Back in the 1980s, uh, most of us would report that we had about three or four close friends. And today, many people report that they only have one or perhaps zero close friends in their lives. Wow. And particularly as people get older, particularly as they, um, if they live in more of a rural environment, it can be quite difficult to maintain meaningful connection with others, mm -hmm. especially during those dark nights of the soul. <laughs> And so we're starting to see things like uh, robot pets for older people. There's a company called Joy for All. It's a division of Hasbro, and they make a robot cat for $99. And mm. it's not so sophisticated at the moment, but in years to come, these kinds of systems are going to get a lot better at uh, providing increasingly meaningful um, connection for human beings. And there are systems such as SimSensei by the U.S. Naval Department of Veteran Affairs, which was developed to help treat post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. And these systems are very, very sophisticated at really getting under someone's skin to really understand uh, from people's breathing, from how they're leaning in and out, the prosody of the speech, that sort of thing, what's really going on in people's heads. And um, I think that might be one way of helping to preserve society. Of course, it is very important to, to have the resources required as well to, to live um, a life worth living. And there's a lot of discussion of things like universal basic income. So far as I can tell, I'm, I'm not convinced that universal basic income is... Uh, in terms of taxation and spending by government, I don't think that's a good idea. 
um, basically it doesn't seem thermodynamically um, appropriate. <laughs> I don't think it's possible to tax enough people that you can provide a universal basic income to people. And I've, I've seen a lot of calculations, but uh, in practice, there's, there's so much wastage in these kinds of government systems that I don't think it's feasible. However, there is an opportunity that not many people uh, are aware of. So it's possible to basically have a robot business. There are entities called distributed autonomous organizations, which are a little bit like a robot business. They have some automation at the core, and they maybe have some humans at the edges doing different tasks. Mm. And essentially, it's a little bit like HAL 9000 having bitcoins. And so um, HAL can pay its own server fees, but it can also hire humans to go and do work for it. Oh my gosh, that's a whole other way of looking at economics in the workforce. Yes. So basically, your boss would be HAL. <laughs> in a sense, yes, but perhaps also guided by... Uh, sort of consensus from other uh, human beings working for that entity perhaps as well. But there are many examples of companies like Newman's Own, right? It's a sort of, it's a brand of mayonnaise and Thousand Island dressing created by the actor, uh, late actor Paul Newman. Mm. And all the profits of that company go to charity. <laughs> now, if it's possible to spawn a robot business which can uh, trade, create value, create products, and you know, as a hybrid of uh, human and machine activity. Therefore, it may be possible to spawn a lot of these kinds of um, social welfare businesses, if you will. And that might be one way of actually providing a form of universal basic income to a lot of people, basically creating robot businesses that um, give their profits as dividends out to the community. And we have some fantastic examples of the free and open source software community um, creating amazing bounty for the world. So these are people that uh, slave away in their bedrooms and basements and create all kinds of amazing protocols upon which the internet runs, right? Mm -hmm. So all of our internet protocols, um, operating systems like Linux and Android and its various uh, versions and the, the web server architecture, but basically everything um, that our world runs on in many ways has been created by this community. And yet there is still room in the world for proprietary protocols, proprietary software, you know, uh, just because there's something that's free doesn't mean that is uh, a sort of automatic default monopoly. Mm. So there are lots of ways for free stuff and uh, social ventures to compete in a world of corporations as well, and for everyone to have their own different economic niche. And so I think that many of the values of the free and open source software movement are going to translate into the creation of these kinds of robot businesses. And I think that is ultimately where we're going to get our some form of universal basic income, not from the government, but actually from these robot businesses. That actually sounds a lot more democratic. It's something that people could create from the ground up or in communities and collaborations, as opposed to having something that's enforced from the top down. Indeed, less coercive and more about community and 
cooperation and participation. So we're coming towards the end of our chat, but I have three questions I'd like to bring to you. The first is, which is your greatest concern with the future of technology and ethics and humanity that you see at this point in time? Well, uh, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, I'm, I'm more concerned about human reaction to machines than machines themselves. Um, we have a lot of examples in history of humans going haywire, um, but not so many examples of machines going haywire. <laughs> but um, one thing I would like to see more of is positive science fiction, because what we encode in our fiction in many ways has a habit of coming true. Yeah, we seem to create our own reality. Yes, because our fiction, our stories in total create our culture, and our culture creates us. I have this theory that human beings are, in fact, a form of AI, in a sense. We are um, created by our culture, uh, a cultural data set, um, which is fed with this monkey mind. And so on top of the monkey mind is this layer of this sort of strange biological AI that's created out of, out of that cultural data set. And so we got to be careful what goes into our cultural data set because that becomes our destiny. And so I would very much like to see science fiction like we used to have back in the 50s and 60s, which is much more optimistic and uh, much more about creating a world that is a little bit um, more optimistic and more utopian. And I think there is danger in uh, only paying attention to the worst possible outcomes because it's kind of like, like when you're uh, riding a bicycle and there's an obstacle ahead, don't look at the obstacle, look where you want to be going, right? And allow, allow the bicycle to take you in that direction, right? Don't look at the bad thing, otherwise it'll tend to, um, it'll tend to ensnare one. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said for keeping these obstacles in peripheral vision and keeping a straight gaze for where you want to be going. Indeed. Maybe it's time to create like a competition to get the best science fiction writers to create something that they wish to inhabit, something for the future that could be, uh, that could be an interesting way of getting it into a wider audience. Indeed, I would love to see that. Okay, so a source of connected question. What is your greatest hope for the future? My greatest hope for the future is our leveraging of these new technologies to develop societies which are more kind, which are more fair, uh, more inclusive, and that we can develop systems and organizations which are less traumatic to human beings. Mm -hmm. Because trauma is the thing that makes our monkey minds go wrong. And we, that creates humans that are less rational and uh, less capable of, of acting in good moral agency. And so I'd like to see a kinder, gentler and more fair society. And I believe that we have an opportunity to create that through things like AI, blockchain and machine ethics in the years to come. So if you could give people maybe one action that they can take today to contribute to or, or fight for this future, what would that be? I invite people to open up conversations about these aspects of society um, and to, to, to think about 
how they would like to, to see society in the years to come. Uh, what would be the nicest possible thing that we could shoot for and then figure out how to work back from there. And I also invite people to uh, start joining the conversation at uh, ethicsnet.com and um, come and create this data set along with other people all across the world and make sure that your voice is counted in creating this kind of data set for machines. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can find resources and links on the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please do give us a rating on iTunes and join in the conversation with the hashtag Hive Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.